back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast that explores resistance to white supremacy through the lens of Jewish and Christian scriptures. The Word is Resistance is a project of Surge Faith. My name is Alan Maxfield Steele, and I'm giving my second offering to The Word is Resistance podcast, recording this on October 24th, 2017, for the October 29th Revised Common Lectionary Readings. The music that welcomed you to the podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, and it's a song called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you're singing is No Enemies. It's a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. The scripture selection for this week is from the gospel attributed to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46, which I'll read after the musical break. And the title of this installment is Join the Conversation. I'm recording from a closet in my home in Haywood County, North Carolina, which is in the western part of North Carolina. And for those of you who know this part of the country, you know I'm in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which make up a bunch of southern Appalachia. You may also recall that this land belongs to the Cherokee. Most of my people come from east of here on the western edge of the Carolina Piedmont, and I'm an ordained clergy person in the tradition known as the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, or Disciples as some of us call it for short. Currently, I am serving as the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee, and am proud and humbled to do that alongside Ashley Woodard Henderson, and the rest of our amazing staff. I'd like to start us off with a little bit of an exercise. So if you're listening to this and sitting, try to sit comfortably. And if you're listening to this and standing, try to sit down or just stand still for a moment. And if you're listening to this and walking around or jogging, consider whether you can pause safely for a few seconds or at least Pretend you're not moving. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to breathe deeply and exhale slowly. And as you do that and bring yourself to a level of comfort, bring to your memory the last person or people who were next to you. And maybe you are with people now, and if that's true, I want you to do what you can to really acknowledge their presence without reaching out to them or looking at them. If you are alone, try to remember what it felt like to have them next to you. Feel them in their absence, even while recalling what their presence felt like. If you are with or near others, feel the distance between you and the person or persons next to you. Breathe a few more times, remembering that each time we breathe, that we may be in many bodies, but that we are bodies whose breath is made of the other. Oh. 
like I said at the beginning, this week's installment of The Word is Resistance is entitled, Join the Conversation. And I'm looking at the gospel as it's attributed to Matthew in its 22nd chapter, verses 34 through 46. And I am reading from the New Revised Standard Version of the Scriptures. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. To begin, now is probably as good a time as any to remember that the Gospel according to Matthew has a history of being used to engage in anti-Jewish thinking and action and sentiment. For whatever reasons, the early communities that told and retold Matthew's story of Jesus, they may have had their struggles with the Jewish communities around them, but we don't need to reinvest in any further weird and destructive notion that perpetuates anti-Jewish sentiment. The Sadducees and Pharisees are Jewish leaders, sure, but what's most important is that they represent the elite, that they represent the authority, not that they represent some eternal Jewish voice in the Christian story. So to the extent that you are able to make sense of it and work with others to make sense of it, remember that the point of this whole story is that Jesus is up against the elite, the authority. The point is not that he is in a contest with Jews and therefore that all Christians should be in a contest with Jews. It's an important distinction to make and one I want to make off the bat. So given that, a little bit more context. By this point in the telling of Jesus' story in Matthew, Jesus is in the middle of a series of verbal rhetorical contests with the religious elite. Remember also that he's doing this in front of people while the Pharisees and Sadducees do this and they're asking him a bunch of questions. So it's a bit of a public thing, or at least something that the people hear about. So it's not a totally private thing. The public, or at least not totally private nature of these exchanges is important. Jesus is not only practicing miracles in the preceding passages and all the other amazing things that he's done. He's doing this in the lives of real people. And he's also openly challenging the, th the authorities in front of them in the middle of Jerusalem, expressing who he is and who they ought to believe that he is. This is important because the more he is able to dismiss the arguments and conflicts thrown against him, the less power the authorities have in the eyes of those he is reaching. And alongside that, in more, you know, um, what's the word? 
early where I am. <laughs> uh, the drama that's building in the story um, is that his body is entering into dangerous territory because of these arguments and his ability to dismiss them. The other context is that he is the son of David, or at least he's being described as the son of David. He's entered into Jerusalem with the support of the people, with palms waving. This is, you know, after he's entered Jerusalem. He has entered as the Messiah, and he's contesting with the authorities that are attempting to suppress his identity. And the theological point of all this is that, according to Matthew, their attempt to suppress his identity and catch him in, you know, being wrong is that they're doing this to God. It's worth paying attention to a lot of things in this passage. It's, you know, the greatest commandment passage. It's the one that gets us into lots of conversation about uh, older scriptures, Jewish scriptures, scriptures of Israel, like Leviticus, which is not always uh, a scripture that, or a piece of pass- or passage and text that gets people uh, thinking a lot about, like, um, you know, really uh, lovey-dovey things. Christians don't really move into that space a lot, but it's, I think, uh, important to remember Leviticus as being really central to a lot of Christian teaching, particularly in Matthew, and particularly for Jesus. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff underneath this text that you could get into biblical studies-wise, but I'm going to focus on some, you know, three things. The first is that silence opens and concludes the passage. The silence of the Sadducees that results from the preceding passage uh, is what we enter into, and it's the silence of the Pharisees that ends the passage is what we're left with. And these silences are a result of Jesus's rhetorical prominence, like he's got all these moves. Uh, They're the consequences of the tactic he's employing to basically maneuver people into being um, wrong. Uh, He's able to conjure through this a stunned silence of those in power and a bustle and a hustle and bustle about others uh, for coming from others, like the people are, are, you know, proclaiming who he is this whole time. So silence and uh, and bustling, I think, are really important dynamics here. The second is about that silence's dynamic relationship to authority. What the people learn in this passage, what Jesus is trying to teach, is that choosing to accept Jesus' identity is choosing to claim an allegiance to a new authority, one that operates as God, as a God who heals, as a God who seeks justice among the people, and as a God who seeks to restore a right relationship to the order of the world. So I think these two things give some shape to what I want to get into around uh, interpersonal and structural things about what it looks like and feels like and sometimes um, where it goes and when it means organizing white people for racial justice. And then there's a third point that I'm going to flag at the end, so hang on to that third point. There are some interpersonal and structural things among white people that I think are worth acknowledging in light of these first two acknowledgments in in these first two pieces uh, that I'm exploring, the silence and their relationship to authority. If you've ever been in an activist space where white people are trying to work through steps to take about engaging racial justice, then I'm betting that you've experienced either personally or in someone else the thick anxiety of having to offer the right answer. 
But the notion that answering right all the time, uh, that notion, I think, is a trick of the empire. It's not a goal of the mystery of God. And I think this is what we see in some of these uh, you know, attempts from the Sadducees and the Pharisees in working against Jesus. Jesus, of course, is God, so the story, you know, God can't be wrong in trying to get the right answer. But when we're talking about those who are trying to corner God into a corner uh, with the right answer questions, et cetera, et cetera, that's a trick of the empire. That's the story's uh, attempt at telling us that um, we're, we're on to something uh, not so great. But the notion that, again, I will repeat that, the notion that answering right all the time, I think, is a trick uh, of the empire. It's, it's a goal of the empire. It's not a goal of the mystery of God. For example, cornering white activists against one another is something that is a uh, more construction of the, the rightness that is embedded in uh, the vision of rightness and their vision of perfection that is embedded in the tools of white supremacy themselves. Who is more right? Who is more down? Who is more accurate in their assumptions? Et cetera, et cetera. Who's got the right analysis? These are goals of empire. Um, these are goals of trying to create a strict line of accuracy. Uh, these aren't the goals of liberation. These aren't feeding that. Now, don't get me wrong. I think rigorous conflict can be healthy and productive. But the outright assaults on less experienced, less articulate, Maybe people are having a rough minute. Um, the, these assaults that we that you've probably witnessed and that maybe are part of some of the organizing communities that you're from or even some of the church communities that you might be from or spiritual or religious communities that you might be from, these assaults on those who are less quote-unquote down or articulate or whatever, um, these get us nowhere. And more than that, I think these assaults and these sort of contests put us closer to the side of the authorities, those who are quite literally trying to author the human story for everyone else, rather than on the side of the disciples or students or learners, which is where God asks us through Jesus to be as regularly as possible in a practice of learning, rather than a practice of authoring or authority. Outside of activist circles, I see this in, you know, poignantly amongst white people across class. I can't begin to count the amount of times I have overheard, uh, just speaking from my own positionality, um, progressive, middle-class white people absolutely thrash poor and working-class white people in their communities uh, to the extent that it sounds like they believe they're actually lesser human beings. There's millions of stories that you can ask me to tell you one day about what it really feels like to be in a context in which we're talking about economic justice and environmental justice and all these different things. And then the next word or breath out of someone's body, uh, maybe from a progressive middle-class positionality is to cast all the blame of that onto the poor folks, um, and particularly poor white folks. Um, it just always strikes me as something that really needs to be remedied and figured out. And it reminds me that the folks uh, we have work to do, uh, we folks have work to do inside white communities toward racial justice, that it's as important as ever to center our organizing moves and organizing dispositions in a sense of relationship and love. This is what the greatest commandment, part two, that Jesus is talking about, is really talking about. Um, this is what this is grounded in. 
the work that we do with other white people ought not to be grounded in politics strictly, but in the politics of relationship. And we have to tease out what that really means. And I think Jesus is asking us to do that in this text. Don't get me wrong. I believe in the significance of confronting white supremacy anywhere it rears its head, especially in violent or uh, direct assault. I don't think militant white supremacists who are marching in our streets necessarily need an invite to coffee to talk through their feelings with us. I don't feel like we can just love white supremacy out of everyone. And I feel like there is certainly a place for direct confrontation and direct action. But I also feel that the power of white supremacy to organize people, our people, is in direct correlation to the inability of white people to have healthy, loving, critical conversations about what it means to connect to and be in conflict with each other across difference and to see God in each other across difference. And I think that applies not just to people across class or across neighborhood or whatever, but also inside our families. And so there's just a lot to unpack here about what it means to do this. This is why Jesus' response to the Pharisees is so plain and powerful. Love God with all of your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's an ancient tradition, an ancient ethic, ethics that he's, that he's lifting up. It's not just the right answer according to the traditions that informed Jesus' historical context and his communities. It's also the answer that helps us break through the quest for perfection and certitude, certitude that is so often demanded of us by white supremacy. There's a freedom in the simplicity here. Are you in love with God? Are you doing good? Are you letting those questions give shape to how you show up in space with other people trying to figure it out? That's all people are trying to do. They might be organizing, they might be angry, but they're trying to figure out where to locate that. Are you letting those questions give shape to how you build relationships across class and geography, education status, etc., etc., etc.? Which brings me to my third and last thing, the last observation I want to raise up and close this out with, which is that Matthew's story reminds me that there is a long arc of struggle inherent in the Messianic Jewish worldview that informs Matthew's depiction of Jesus as the Messiah, or at least what the Matthean community was trying to do by lining Jesus up in this trajectory. Just as important as understanding the role of Jesus in this story, I think, is, is understanding the genealogy of struggle from which Jesus' life emerges, according to Matthew, from which the Matthean community's construction of Jesus emerges. And this is that the one that aligns Jesus with David. And I would call this, a, you know, for offering here, a genealogy of struggle. I'm reminded by this, and I'm, in, you know, kind of putting a risk out there of opening this up because I've not explored it super fully, but I want people to think through this together, particularly as white folks, which is that histories of struggle are critical for giving context and voice to the liberation we seek. We're not just born into a vacuum absent of struggle. So here is a question. What is your genealogy of struggle? If you're like me, if you're white as hell and you're Southern or whatever, you may wonder in this moment if your family history has anything to do with liberation struggles. 
And if you have doubts about any of that, I'd say I agree with you. <laughs> uh, I'm with you on that. But I'd, I'd also offer that we can let God work on you, work on us, your people, our people for a little while. If in your genealogy of struggle, people in your family or chosen or biological have acknowledged the two key commandments, you know, the ones that Jesus lifts up here, even in some small way, I think it means that they were somehow trying to figure out how to free themselves and walk in the light of God as God's children, regardless of how they may have interpreted it at the time. And even if they did some awful things, even if they participated in some terrible things, the recognition of the commandment Jesus mentions in this passage is a light toward which your people grow and grew. And it's one toward which you are still growing and toward which your descendants will continue to grow alongside others. So even if your people are the ones silenced by the power of Jesus's questions, God's grace and the love from others to whom you are committed in this work will help you and your people join the conversation again. to action today. The first, and this is for my, you know, not just my Southern folk, but it's for anybody, but uh, particularly for my Southern folk. If you haven't picked this book up yet, I would say pick up a copy of Dixie Be Damned, 300 Years of Insurrection in the American South. And it's just one of many inter interesting and engaging examples of stories about resistance, where some may least expect it. The second is to spend time learning about the Rural Organizing Project in Oregon and its incredible experience organizing in rural communities, more recently against white supremacist groups and right-wing militias. They've done that for a minute, but just some of their more recent and intense work has been around that. Learn more about Rural Organizing Project at www.rop.org and figure out ways to throw down in solidarity with people organizing in mostly white communities across rural America while also centering pro-black, pro-people of color, pro-working class, and poor person lenses. So the work that they're doing up there is really fantastic and is a model that I would really encourage people to check out. The third is to do everything you can to share and support the work of the Movement for Black Lives Electoral Justice Project, which you can learn more about at EJP dot m4 bl dot org again that is ejp m numeral four bl dot org and if you want to talk about how to translate the question of authority in a 21st century context in a way that moves away from empire empire and toward liberation then all you have to do is think about the transformation that would take place in this country of black political power, and especially of black women and black gender-oppressed folks, if that power took hold. So I'm getting really hyped about that. That's come out in the last couple of weeks. Go check it out. Spread the word. Thanks so much for listening today, everyone. I'll be back in December, but be sure to check out 
next week's Word is Resistance podcast, which will be offered by the amazing Margaret Ernst for the Sunday of November 5th. You can find out more about Surge and Surge Faith at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud, so just search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas, and transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We Are Building Up a New World is the name of the song, and the group you are hearing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. Many blessings to all of you. Take care and remember that the word is resistance. Yeah.